This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast, episode 39. Hopefully having a great one and appreciate you listening in however you're doing so, be it through 1037thegame.com, the free mobile app, and all the great podcast gimmicks we got out there that includes Apple and Google Podcasts. So let's waste very little time and get right down to business with what's causing all this, and that's the three count. The big headlines in the world of professional wrestling over the last week was about former WWE superstar Tyler Rex, real name now Gabby Tuft, who uh, formerly known as Gabe Tuft, came out as transgender in transition. Rex was in WWE between 2009 and 2012 and posted a statement to Instagram writing that she is no longer fearful to be her authentic self. And they opened up about the experience in an interview with Extra TV, also saying, quote, this is me, unashamed, unabashedly me. This is the side of me that has been hidden in the shadows, afraid and fearful of what the world would think, afraid of what my family, friends, and followers would say or do. Also says, I am no longer afraid and I'm no longer fearful. I can now say with confidence that I love myself for who I am. And I got to say, that's just really cool stuff. And I know everybody, it was definitely jarring to see the news happen. In fact, when I already got the text, I was like, I just saw, it's like, did you hear about Tyler Rex? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I... I, I again, I hate to say it, but again, it's like in the world of COVID nineteen and whatnot, and you just see people suddenly passing away. You immediately think about that when you hear somebody's name that you haven't heard in a long time. And Tyler Rex is one of those guys. And I thought for a minute, did he pass away? Did are we really going to get this? That was not the case. Thankfully, it wasn't. And it's actually a really cool story. And I hope that Gabby Tuff, real name of the former WWE superstar Tyler Rex is able to have a good life and wish nothing but the best. And if anybody is that way, is transgender, more power to you, come out with it. Like, I think this is a great step, and I feel like it's it's just a great story. And it made, made me feel good to kind of hear about this news happening last week. Then we get to New Japan Pro Wrestling and IndieWrestling.tv. They actually dropped a bit of news that might interest you if you love free television and you love to watch wrestling. Well, New Japan Pro Wrestling is launching a show on Roku as part of the Roku channel, which, by the way, you can get for free, even if you don't have the Roku gimmick. I wound up initially thinking you had to only have the little streaming service to be able to get that. But lo and behold, I wound up finding out through a little Google search, should have done that sooner, is that the Roku channel is free for anybody, basically. You don't even need to have an account, which is really cool. So... New Japan Pro Wrestling is going to be on Roku on Thursdays. I believe it's going to be starting later this month. And it's just really cool. The fact they're going to be the Roku channel, so people will be able to watch it for absolutely free. It'll be a partnership starting on February the 11th. Episodes of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Presumably, it'll be a lot like what they've done in the past with their partnership with Access TV, where it's a lot of content that they've had from past shows and everything in between. That way, you get more eyes on the product. Happen every Thursday night, beginning at five o'clock on the Roku channel. It'll be ten special episodes. Uh, and that will see the U.S., U.K., and Canadian television premiere of Wrestle Kingdom fourteen. It'll be available on demand thereafter, which is badass. 
Second of all, it also hosts a block of library content featuring key highlights from the 2020 New Japan catalog with the potential for more historical content coming down the line. So this is a step in the right direction for New Japan after the whole access deal fell through, after Impact joined the joined the fold and wanted to be bought by them. So that's going to be fun. I the fact it's just the fact we get to see more wrestling through some sort of way, and AVOD is the way to be. And that's why independentwrestling.tv announces well that they have a partnership that they recently established with Pluto. If you don't know what Pluto TV is, it is a fantastic service that I probably use on a regular basis. People fall asleep watching the WWE Network. Sometimes I'll fall asleep watching Pluto TV, namely because of the fact they have such great like content, not just pro wrestling-wise, but just everything. they got a great sports channels. They've also got Impact Wrestling. They have Impact Wrestling on there 24-7. It's a feed of just cool stuff. They have the same kind of thing on Twitch. But this is actually a little bit different than those. Because the new arrangement, according to independentwrestling.tv, they put a press release earlier in the week saying that they have a new channel as part of their partnership with Mark Out Media and bringing independent wrestling to more fans for free, available everywhere you can stream Pluto TV. And again, that's Pluto.tv. I know there's an app for PlayStation 4, Roku, speaking of that, Chromecast, a lot of different things. Something I use on the regular ba- on a regular basis, especially more now. Because I wanted to see what this pro wrestling channel was going to be all about. And some of the highlights for this include Beyond Wrestling's Uncharted Territory Season 1. The entire library is up there. Women's Wrestling Revolution, which I believe is a, a subsidiary of Beyond Wrestling, is up there. So th- those two things alone are well worth your Prices of admission, which is free. They also had a bunch of stuff later in, like late at night, and I was blown away by this. It was like a compilation of old school, like independent wrestling, circa I'd say early two thousands, and it showed like Jerry Lawler against, um, I'm trying to think who it was. I think it was Terry Funk or Dusty Rhodes. It was crazy, and in fact, I'm pulling it up as we speak, watching live, and they actually have Urban Wrestling Federation. It's really wild to see this entire, like how much stuff they have on here that they're airing on a regular basis. And it's 24-hour television. Yes, there's ads in there, but it's still really darn cool that they're doing this. And we're seeing more independent wrestling be able to be kind of consumed for free. Because obviously the other big thing is Fight TV, and they don't necessarily have everything for absolutely positively free 99. This is massive to be able to get a lot of promotions a lot more love and probably even more of a convincing idea to basically say, hey, come on over to our side. That way you get more eyes on you and also, more importantly, more eyes on you that are free and it's just more content for them because obviously it's a bit of like a almost a, I wouldn't say a bidding war, but it's definitely a battle nonetheless to be able to try and convince people to come over to your service versus, let's say, Fight TV where they have almost every single independent wrestling promotion inside their own little world. And the final bit of news involves the sport of pro wrestling with the WWE, and that is Lars Sullivan and Steve Cutler both got released to very, very different reasons. And according to reports, Lars Sullivan apparently actually no-showed a TV taping, and that's a big reason why he wanted being released, and also his push came to a screeching halt. I didn't even realize he was having a push, considering the fact of how many times he's Shown up, disappeared, shown up, disappeared. He's been very much almost persona non grata. 
with the WWE. He is, he's had his start to his push, then all the allegations came out of all the stuff he put out on the message boards, all that mess, and then the adult film came out. Not that there's anything wrong with what he did behind the scenes, but all that stuff was a mess. And it was all kind of leading towards a certain point in the day. And I just sat there. I was like, okay, Laura Sullivan released. That makes sense. It's about time because you weren't doing anything with him. And again, I kind of forgot he had a knee injury as well. So all that stuff kind of derailed the start-stop momentum of one Lars Sullivan. He got released because largely because of not showing up to work, which justifiable. Then we get to Steve Cutler. Oh, boy. First of all, Steve Cutler was just almost cursed right from the jump with the WWE because he was part of the Forgotten Sons and then part of the Knights of the Lone Wolf, which was like an incel group that uh, Baron Corbin had. God, that was a mistake. Like, and Cutler seemed like he had potential, but, man, he just kept having a bad break. And one of those is that he got released. This came down February 4th, uh, first reported by Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful, and then Papa Dave, Uncle Dave, said on the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, he had more to the story, saying it's believed he was the first pro wrestler fired for getting COVID. Not necessarily true, because, according to his source, that sentence is a little bit of weird phrasing and probably could be a lawsuit. But anyways, Vince McMahon was livid for a disciplinary reason related to a New Year's Eve party. Cutler and his girlfriend, now Knockouts champion, Deanna Perrazzo, tested positive early last month. And they added, we had no symptoms, but took all the precautions necessary. And it all kind of doubles back to one person in particular, that's Roman Reigns. It all goes back to the big dog, the head of the table, because McMahon promised a few wrestlers, Roman Reigns included, probably Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, all those guys a safe environment when he returned and color was around all the talent and may have very well had COVID at that time. And it seems like he had been a regular at the performance center and was well liked, but that alone was more than enough to tick off the WWE and what's going on with Steve color. He got released due, due to that. It's not necessarily because he caught COVID is because of like he was around wrestlers and he was very much being like unsafe especially around guys like Roman Reigns, probably Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, Daniel Bryan. Those are the names that I think off the top of my head are the ones that probably are the ones that Vince McMahon told them, hey, we're going to try and make this a lot safer. That way you can come back into the fold. That's kind of where I look at it. But it's nuts to think that that's what the big kind of nail in the coffin was. Meanwhile, you got in NXT, Casey Catanzaro being a complete numpty I guess you could say about what's going on with her out there at like parties on Super Bowl weekend no mask just enjoying life like nothing is going on in the middle of a pandemic it, I'm, I'm not here to signal virtue signal or none of that stuff I'm just saying like it's a bad look if you're out there doing that and also hanging out with people who were storming the Capitol on January 6th it's not a political thing I'm going to try and deviate away from that but Casey Catanzaro is continuing to seem like a even bigger idiot than she was a while back when she started having her and Ricochet started having all these maskless parties. It's a complete mess, and hopefully WWE just kind of says, "Hey, let's like it's time to make an example to somebody else 
Because apparently releasing somebody is not working. And deep pushing somebody and making them look like a complete geek like Ricochet isn't working. I think it's well past time for them to maybe do some stuff like the NFL's done, where they find people significant amounts of money. I think there's got to be something that they can do to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen. Because it's 2021, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and how can you risk these guys and, and girls getting sick and you have these people out there that are very much maybe not COVID truthers. It's insulting, and it makes me really wonder how much, I mean, more people they are in the WWE that are like this. Maybe it's just me. Now let's get to AEW Dynamite, and my goodness, it was a fantastic show Really solid matches. The tag team battle royal was a lot of fun. But I want to just fast forward to two things. The beach break wedding, which wasn't in a beach. It was inside of a ring. And it was cool. I'm not going to lie. James Mitchell showed up. I popped for that. But it was just, it went on way too long. And it just it just dragged. It wasn't necessarily my favorite thing in the world. I thought it would have been. But it just didn't work as well as I thought it would. Obviously, Orange Cassidy showed up at the end. And, you know, I love the fact that the fans were singing What is Love. and it, I couldn't stop laughing at that. It was really good. But just didn't do anything for me. But what did something for me, without a doubt, was the main event of the night. Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers taking on John Moxley, Ray Phoenix, and Pac. A really good six-man tag team match that ended with, you know, I think it's all about the finish here. Because Moxley tagged in late. He knocked Anderson off the ring apron then turned back to Omega for an exchange of strikes. Omega landed a knee strike, but Mox fired back with a lariat. Gallows entered kicked Mox down when Phoenix and Anderson got involved. Raw started saying things were going crazy. Omega gave Mox a paradigm shift, but Pac broke up the cover with a 450. Everyone was slow to get up, and then Don Callis on commentary said the action was too fast to call, and then Mox gave Anderson a gun stun. Everyone was just basically doing the old SmackDown, steal your finisher move. Absolutely love that. Then they delivered the Magic Killer to get the win. Omega Gal, Anderson Gallows, take down Pac, Moxley, and Ray Phoenix. Really good six-man tag team match. But it's all about what happens after the match, because as... As the, I guess you could say the Bullet Club-esque beat down, Moxley Archer charged out, cleared the ring of the heel trio. Then Mox crawled over to Omega and looked over at him. And then a masked man entered the ring and then unmasked as Kenta. Yes, Kenta shows up out of nowhere. I love this. And I'm really disappointed because I didn't see Dynamite live. But when I got home, I turned on my computer. First thing I saw on Twitter was the video. And I was like, oh, my God, pro wrestling is so awesome when you have moments like this. It's the moments of that where you're just, oh, my God, I can't believe they actually opened up the Forbidden Door. This was what you wanted this entire time. It's all what you wanted. And they kept saying it was never going to happen, never in a million years. The Forbidden Door was going to remain closed. Well, it's wide open now, baby, and I am all the way here for it. I'm just absolutely 
killing it. Absolutely just loving every single minute of it. I can't wait to see what's going to happen with AEW Dynamite next week. So much stuff going on. I have to think you got AEW, Impact, New Japan, MLW, NWA. Almost every single member of every single promotion outside of Ring of Honor and WWE are all working together. That is going to be freaking awesome. And hopefully there's more to it. Hopefully there's more layers. And maybe just maybe we can get the true Bullet Club Civil War we never got a few years ago. We can actually get a true blow-off to that. Because I'd be all the way here for it. Maybe, just maybe, we could have WWE have a big like cross-promotional thing with another company. Maybe it's just evolved, but who knows. I would absolutely love to see something like that in AEW. And just absolutely go all out and make this thing like a, let's say, you know, double or nothing and have that be an entire weekend where it's like a supercar. Have something like that. AEW, Impact, AAA, New Japan, MLW, National Wrestling Alliance. So many things. I love this. And it just absolutely has my mind racing about, like, what are they going to do next? Because... That's what makes wrestling great sometimes is booking these matches out or booking these angles out to where you can actually open up a partnership. This is where things are going to build towards revolution. Double nothing all out. Probably the next several years of programming. If these partnerships are still around, if they are, this makes AEW the place to be because of the unpredictability of it. Nobody saw Kenta showing up coming. Now, could this be a temporary partnership that gets revisited more down the road? I don't know. But tell me you wouldn't love seeing AEW Dynamite and New Japan Pro Wrestling in a collab for some super card event and spread it between two continents. They're doing a Joshi tournament with a bunch of Japanese wrestlers having one part of the bracket there and the American bracket here. Then whoever comes out of both brackets squares off whatever the hell that's going to be. So I think there's so much potential with this. I just don't know which way it's going to go. But I am looking forward to it. One other thing I was looking forward to this week was Super Bowl 55. I kind of got more amped up for it. And then the game happened. And I got more more and more less interested. Just completely disinterested by halftime. Because it was all Tampa Bay. Can't stand Tom Brady. But you got to respect the man. So after the halftime performance with the weekend, which, by the way, was an absolute mess. And then some, I got dizzy at one point watching him inside the, the room with the mirrors and all that. That was a mistake. I wanted to do something. And it was always something I wanted to go back and watch. And that was the infamous... Halftime heat match from 1999. It was only something I wanted to see re-aired on TV. I can remember back whenever WWE Excess was a thing. And they, I remember when they always would air like random matches from different pay-per-views and whatnot. Stuff that you would never really see on TV anymore. Because back then you didn't have the network. You didn't have the, what was before that WWE 24-7. At least I didn't. And they would say, hey, like, email us what match you would love to see. And one of those I did because... I was a huge rock mark growing up. I wanted to watch that match and watch Halftime Heat and see it happen. I, I remember emailing WWE.com 
and saying, hey, I want to see this match. And never they never aired it. I think they actually canceled it not long after I sent that email. Probably it was in like eighth grade or whatever. So it was cool. And I was more of a WCW guy, so I didn't see it when it originally happened. So I wanted to rewatch Halftime Heat because I've watched it before. I watched it after, thankfully, because of the network. But I want to rewatch it for just to get some thoughts on it. First off, Shane McMahon's on commentary for Sunday Night Heat still at this time. I love the fact he was doing this because he brought a different kind of energy. He was that cocky heel, but at the same time, he just had that like different energy compared to like a lot of stuff that we see even now. With it, just feels very subdued. Shane Shane O'Mac was everywhere on it. It was great. Early on, Mankind took control of the contest when they were in the ring, hitting a double arm DDT before they wanted to go into the outside. At one point, Rock threw Mankind through a barrier, and I was kind of looking back at the memory banks. They didn't do that spot nearly as much as they do now, where literally, I think almost every match or one match a week has a spot where they go through the barricade. This was back when it was actually like a rarity, and it looked really cool. And then at one point, Rock buries him under a pile of chairs, which was awesome. The Rock later goes back to the commentary desk, cuts a mini promo before Mankind hits him with the mandible claw. The two start making their way up the stairs in the arena, and it felt like it was just weird, the fact that we're going up the stairs, and it kind of ends with a payoff with Rock hitting him with a trash can and Mankind sliding on down the stairs, rolling over himself. Vince's commentary was great as well throughout here because he was doing the commentary from the empty arena match, and he had so much fun with it. You could tell he was having himself an absolute ball. And then you wind up seeing them go all the way to the back in the concession stand. Rock tries putting Foley on the stove, and he does this like obvious sound effect of the sound of just the heat off the stove or whatever it was. I think maybe a pizza oven. But I like that. Later on, the sh- I mean, Rockets put the popcorn. We've seen that clip umpteen million times. The fight goes into catering. It becomes a complete food fight. But it's really cool seeing more people like backstage. I couldn't quite get every single person. But I, I think you at least had Michael Hayes in there somewhere. And I just, I laughed at that. Then you had, you know, them wind up in an office and The Rock beats him up with a phone and eventually strangles him with a phone cord. Remember when that was a thing? Mankind winds up building momentum and they brawl throughout the arena, show a wide shot. And there's a forklift to be lifted up. It's obviously foreshadowing. Mankind puts the mandible claw on the rock once again. And it sets up the rock to be pinned underneath the forklift. Love the finish of that, by the way. And Mankind becomes a WBF champion for the second time in his career. It wasn't a technical masterpiece by any means, but it was still entertaining. And over the weekend, I wound up also like getting the PWI, the one with the year in review. And they brought up some of the stuff from like the halftime heat as being a cinematic match and say this is one of those like first more notable like cinematic matches. I know they did a lot of them back in Japan but if we were to rank it alongside some of the modern contemporaries it's a little bit above the swamp battle for me from Extreme Rules which by the way was a complete mess now let's get to NXT I was talking about Casey Catanzaro I'm glad she lost by the way in the semifinal match, Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez taking on Casey Catanzaro and Caden Carter in a tag team match. It was weird not seeing Casey in the Royal Rumble. Then again, when I've heard the news, I realized why. Really solid match between the two. Great hot tag sequence with Catanzaro attacking Kai after the commercial break. She also got up on a truss to hit a cross body on Kai and Gonzalez 
And she treated both of them like a ninja warrior course to a certain extent. She like ran off their back, climbed up the damn thing, and hit the crossbody. Really freaking awesome spot. Catanzaro hits a top rope, twisting Moonsault for 2.9 count. It looked like she over-rotated a little bit, but it was still a cool spot nonetheless. Then Gonzalez really powers out the match, gets her team to the finals with a chokeslam on Catanzaro to take on the winner of Shotzi Blackheart and Amber Moon versus Candice LeRae and Andy Hartwell. That match will be next week, or should I say this Wednesday, and the two will, and the winner will face off against Gonzalez and Kai at Vengeance Day, which is the dumbest idea for a pay-per-view card of all time. And that was, instead of calling it Valentine's Day Massacre, you could have called it that as opposed to freaking Vengeance Day. Come on now. After the match, they cut to the the crowd, I guess you could say. They also cut to the announce team, and they show Wade Barrett being introduced as a United States citizen. Really cool for them to mention that, and that's awesome to see Wade Barrett be a United States citizen after almost a, well over a decade being in the States after being part of WWE for a good while, and now he's back over there. Really cool stuff. Then we get an interesting matchup. Leon Ruff taking on Austin Theory. Not a fan of Theory's new entrance music, but, you know, it is what it is. I'm never going to hate on, outright hate on somebody for a entrance or entrance music. But the thing I'm questioning and just very much frustrated about is the fact that Austin Theory, or Leon Ruff, excuse me, is already back to being a jobber. Yes, he came out with the no entrance job intro, and it was like, okay, this is weird. Because remember, this guy was an NXT North American champion about like three months ago. Or two months ago, something like that. Anyways, then you have Ruff. He gets some momentum back after stopping Gargano from interfering twice, laying him out with a big punch. Larray and Indy come out to help Gargano, but Moon and Blackheart fight to the back, and then they all got to leave the ringside area. And that gives Ruff a chance to pay homage to Eddie Guerrero by acting like he got hit by Gargano, and that gets Johnny ejected. And obviously, he's upset about it. But it wasn't enough, though, with Theory still coming away with the win after the ATL, which is a badass move to begin with. Really cool stuff here. And it continued to make me think, like, Ruff doesn't have, like, an endgame now, and he's looking like a jobber again. Hopefully there's more to the story with Gargano versus Ruff, but doesn't seem likely, especially now that it came out later on, that Gargano is going to be facing off against Kushida, at Vengeance Day, which is still a bad name. But one thing that's not bad is Tian Sha and the origin story. They had the little video package where it had different animation styles. Just blew me away, and I completely remember why I love this gimmick. Because it is Lucha Underground anime story style. Building a character this way is going to be so cool, and if you keep it on NXT, and they should... It's going to be awesome once it actually debuts. A lot like what we saw with Karrion Cross and Scarlett Bordeaux with, they, with how they debuted. This is going to be so much fun. I cannot wait for this gimmick to actually happen. Then we get to the Dusty Cup quarterfinals. Lucha House Party versus Legado del Fantasma. And this was nuts, especially after the commercial break. You had a move where Grand Metalik hit a Hurricane Rana on Mendoza to the outside, followed by Moonsault by Dorado. This was like a... Ha- a fast-paced, like, X-Division circa 2009 match. Absolutely badass. Loved it. And the finish was Mendoza hitting the high-low to allow 
while in Mendoza to advance, they'll be taking on the MSK, the former Rascals, inside the semifinals for the Dusty Cup. Then they, then you get later on Edge showing up to NXT. It opens the segment opens up with Dunn, Lorcan, and Birch, not the law offices, but this group which doesn't have a, a stable name. I thought they would have, but it is what it is. All three of them come out, and Dunn calls out Finn Balor, saying he sent a message to Finn Balor, who comes out and says that Dunn's chance to be the man will be at TakeOver's Vengeance Day, which, again, hate the name. The fact they kept bringing it up every night is maybe get more frustrated because we don't get to see a Valentine's Day massacre in 2021. The, the name would have made so much more sense, but, you know, apparently massacre isn't a good word to say in 2021. Whatever. So after Finn talks his stuff, Edge comes out. Weird that I saw the Raw logo, even though technically he's more of a free agent. And Edge basically put over NXT like crazy, saying that they gave him back his energy and gave him back like his his smile. And Edge says that he, NXT focuses on the second W in WWE. Great line, by the way. He sees fire and hunger in the eyes of the guys in NXT and mentions that their fire relit the passion he has for this business. Edge and teases he wants to challenge the NXT champion no matter who it is after the pay-per-view. And it was so cool. The, fa- the fans just absolutely lost their mind with this tease. Now, mind you, I think he's going to continue to tease whoever he's going to face off against. I would love to see the NXT title match be on Mania. And again, it needs to be Edge losing, giving a big rub to Balor or Pete Dunne or whoever it's going to be because that would be a massive move for WrestleMania, because I, I don't, I don't want to see Edge lose to McIntyre or Reigns, because it just does, it does, it does nobody any good. Reigns is already the most over person in the company. Drew McIntyre's already beaten damn near everybody, and it just doesn't fit him that well. It's like you have to shift somebody to being a heel. I would much rather see Edge be babyface against Finn or Dunn versus be a tweener against McIntyre or have to be the white meat babyface against Roman Reigns who does the job. Because we don't think that, you know, Roman's going to lose, right? Right? Anyways, then we get to another women's match, which is really quick, with Tony Storm squashing Jessica Maya, who apparently is a new member of the Robert Stone brand. Don't like the gear. Felt like she was wearing, like, a trash bag. But it was very strange. So we had that happen, and then the match ends with you know Mercedes Martinez coming out. It's a full Pier 6 brawl. Io Shirai comes out to watch the fight and then gets in on the fun with a moonsault to the outside to Martinez and Storm, all confirming a triple threat match for the NXT Women's Championship. Then we get to the NXT Cruiserweight title match, which was really good, by the way. It was a little short, but it was really cool, and they also had like different subplots to it. Santos Escobar wound up pertaining against Kurt Stallion, who apparently is a really like weird cat. I found that out after doing some Googling because I'd, I'd never really known much about Kurt Stallion. The name's awesome, but, you know, whatever. And then they show Cross backstage talking with Edge in the parking lot, saying he'll take back the NXT title that he never lost, but he was also probably going to face off against um, um, Santos Escobar. I almost said Ohio de Fantasma. That's not his name. It's not his name anymore. Anyways, so Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher are going to main event against Adam Cole and Roderick Strong. And this match ruled. Probably my favorite match of the week, no doubt. The hard-hitting, no-nonsense style of Ciampa and Thatcher was phenomenal. 
alongside the typical UE match we see with the Undisputed Era. Champ and Strong started exchanging blows midway through the match, and they looked stiff, and I loved it. I love again. I love hard hitting matches, and this was another highlight reel one. Winced a lot at the Ushigoroshi on Champ after his neck injury. The way it hit, I was like, Ugh. definitely not a fan of that. Strong had a really cool counter of the Fujiwara armbar with a nice roll up. Strong had another great counter of the fairy tale ending, hitting an angle slam. And it was really smooth. Again, Strong's probably one of the most underrated guys on the roster. He definitely deserves so much more love. And the Tomasa Champa hits the Willows Bell, punches a ticket to the semis against Grizzled Young Vets. Fantastic show all the way around. Now let's get to something completely different and get to WWE and their year-end call reporting record results for 2020 and looking ahead to 2021. We start off with the revenue, 282, 230, excuse me. First things first, let's look at the revenue for the fourth quarter of 2020. They saw a decrease of 26% or $84.6 billion in terms of the revenue from quarter to quarter, reflecting the absence of the company's large-scale event in Saudi Arabia, as well as just ticketed live events. But their adjusted OIBDA, was $51.2 million, a decrease of $56.4 million. But when you look at their full-year highlights, really interesting to see how this works out. It was actually an increase of about 1% in terms of the revenue this year. $974.2 million just in revenue. Operating income was about $208.5 million, a decrease of about $92 million, driven by the rise in content rights fees. Which have a high incremental margin. This, so they're adjusted as about 286.2. Again, these numbers are going to be kind of boring for the most part, but it's really cool. Especially when I talk about what's going to be going on next year. And again, this goes back to the stuff we talked about with the Peacock deal. The Peacock deal changes everything. Changes the, the future of this business plan and changes the future of how things are going to go. And they signed the multi-year deal for about a billion dollars. And according to them, this strategic agreement allows WWE to reach a much much larger audience and realize a greater return as compared to the standalone subscription service. Mentioning WrestleMania will return to Tampa Bay, limited attendance, safety protocols will be coming soon. Probably not that much, I would say. But they expect to see these restrictions through the first half of 2021 and also mentioned that they will kind of continue creating content at the Thunderdome from its stadium residence post-WrestleMania until they can get to a certain point in time where things will move up. They expect things to improve in 2020. But it's crazy to see that. that They are turning a profit with all this stuff. Considering everything that they dealt with in the last year, in the middle of the pandemic and having to lay off all these people, they are still making money. And I saw this tweet, and this is a big reason why I wanted to bring out even more so was the fact that the way WWE's changed in the last few years. This comes from Brandon Thurston of WrestleNomics. Let me give him credit for doing an amazing job with WrestleNomics. But he actually had a graph. I love graphs. So it shows how much things have changed from business to business versus direct to consumer. And when it comes to direct to consumer, we're talking about live events, consumer products, 
the network, pay-per-view, even WWE Studios from 2007 to 2015, Home Entertainment Magazine. While business the business is television, your core content rights fees, digital media, media advertising, and sponsorships, WWE Network licensing fees, and other media, including KSA events. I don't know what KSA events means off top, but whatever. I feel like that might be Saudi Arabia events, probably. Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, I guess. So let's go back to 2002. This is where this chart starts. And this was, I'd say, somewhat even. You had 67% of the earnings come from direct-to-consumer. It makes sense. Live events were pretty good at the time. Even in 2008, you had 78% of your business be with direct-to-consumer. Business-to-business was only 22%. Fast forward to 2018, it was 10 years later. According to this, it was almost 50-50. So in 10 years' time, the business model shifted to from 78% direct-to-consumer, 22% business-to-business. Now it's 52% in 2018 in terms of business-to-business versus a DTC, direct-to-consumer, at 48%. And that gap started to grow more and more. And according to these projections, in 2020, it was 70 to 30% business-to-business at 70 and direct-to-consumer at 30. Again, makes sense. You're not having as many live events, so the gap becomes a lot wider. Now, according to his estimates, according to what he's reading in terms of reading the room right now, By 2023, WWE will be 81% business to business in terms of the revenue that they're making versus 19% direct consumer. That is amazing. It's amazing. At the same time, it, it makes a lot of sense when it comes right down to it. Because you look at how the product has gone since, let's say, 2012, 2013. I'd say once the network started, 2014, let's go ahead and put that marker there. 2014, you launched the network. We saw a lot more 50-50 booking. Things didn't matter nearly as much in terms of the long-term booking of the of the company because, the, because you weren't really selling people on the pay-per-view. You were selling people on a product like the WWE Network it's where you can watch everything, all the wrestling in the world. You can watch on that. Now you're more focused on the Fox deal, the NBC Universal deal you have with Raw and NXT, and you also have now the Peacock deal. That's probably damn near three billion dollars just off of that alone. So it makes sense. But now, and people want to complain about this, but at the end of the day, Vince McMahon's a, a freaking genius when it comes to making money. Think about this statement. Within the next three years, over eight, a little over eighty percent of his profits, his revenue, is going to be strictly from business to business work. Now, Vince McMahon, in his own unique way, doesn't have to do wrestling anymore. He's now is just creating content. He's turned WWE from being a wrestling company into a content farming machine. Tons of great content is on the network. Tens of thousands of hours, which you probably 
may have watched me like a small smidgen of it. A little bit of it. Tell me you wouldn't want a piece of that pie. I'm looking forward to seeing how this whole thing goes going forward. Because based off of this trend, the WWE is more focused on making business-to-business deals. Direct-to-consumer is going to become a secondary, if not tertiary thing. Because of the fact that live events are starting to go away. They were already starting to go away pre-pandemic. And if you're in Lafayette, you know that Cajun Dome shows, those probably aren't going to be a thing anymore because you sat on your hands on Monday Night Raw in 2019. But also the fact that the WWE is not doing live events anymore. They are more focused on making the dollar-dollar bills, y'all, from business to business versus direct consumer. That's not a bad thing in terms of the way WWE is going to be able to exist in this current landscape. It's a bad thing for wrestling fans who love WWE because it's clear with this model, they do not give a you-know-what about giving the consumer what they want. It's all about getting business to business, getting these rights fees, because they're following the same model different sports franchises have. Because guess what? Look at what the NFL just had in their season. Billions, with a B, billions of dollars thrown their way. I am absolutely looking forward to seeing how this whole thing pans out. Because the WWE may be the smartest people in the room when it comes right down to it. Appreciate you listening in to the Cajun Strong Zone podcast. Make sure you leave a review. Five stars, six stars here in the Tokyo Dome. I'll be back with you next week with another brand new edition of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. And by the way, let me just say this real quick. We were going to do tier list. We're going to do tier list starting next week. A lot of stuff happened in this past week in wrestling and just life in general was crazy. We're going to do it next week, starting with The Undertaker. We're going to do The Undertaker tier list next week. So make sure you keep it locked right here for that on the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, which is... A lot like AEW over.